Section 7 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 9 to 10. Chapter 9 Hands. Curdie went home, pondering much, and told everything to his father and mother. As the old princess had said, it was now their turn to find what they had heard hard to believe. If they had not been able to trust Curdie himself, they would have refused to believe more than the half of what he reported. Then they would have refused that half too, and at last would most likely for a time have disbelieved in the very existence of the princess, what evidence their own senses had given them notwithstanding for he had nothing conclusive to show in proof of what he told them. When he held out his hands to them, his mother said they looked as if he had been washing them with soft soap, only they did smell of something nicer than that, and she must allow it was more like roses than anything else she knew. His father could not see any difference upon his hands, but then it was night, he said, and their poor little lamp was not enough for his old eyes. As to the feel of them, each of his own hands, he said, was hard and horny enough for two, and it must be the fault of the dullness of his own thick skin that he felt no change on Curdie's palms. Here, Curdie, said his mother, try my hand and see what beast's paw lies inside it. No, mother, answered Curdie, half beseeching, half indignant. I will not insult my new gift by making pretense to try it. That would be mockery. There is no hand within yours but the hand of a true woman, my mother. I should like you to take hold of my hand, though, said his mother. You are my son, and may know all the bad there is in me. Then at once Curdie took her hand in his, and when he had it he kept it, stroking it gently with his other hand. Mother, he said at length. Your hand feels just like that of the princess. What? My horny, cracked, rheumatic old hand, with its big joints and its short nails all worn down to the quick with hard work, like the hand of the beautiful princess? Why, my child, you will make me fancy your fingers have grown very dull indeed, instead of sharp and delicate, if you talk such nonsense. Mine is such an ugly hand. I should be ashamed to show it to any one but one that loved me. "'But love makes all safe, doesn't it, Curdie?' "'Well, mother, all I can say is that I don't feel a roughness, "'or a crack, or a big joint, or a short nail. "'Your hands feel just and exactly, as near as I can recollect, "'and it's not more than two hours since I had it in mine. "'Well, I will say, very like indeed to that of the old princess.' "'Go away, you flatterer!' said his mother, with a smile that showed how she prized the love that lay beneath what she took for its hyperbole. The praise, even which one cannot accept, is sweet from a true mouth. If that is all your new gift can do, it won't make a warlock of you. She added, Mother, it tells me nothing but the truth, insisted Curdie. However unlike the truth it may seem, it wants no gift to tell what anybody's outside hands are like. "'but by it I know your inside hands are like the princesses.' "'And I am sure the boy speaks true,' said Peter. 
"'He only says about your hand "'what I have known ever so long about yourself, Joan. "'Curdie, your mother's foot is as pretty a foot "'as any lady's in the land. "'But where her hand is not so pretty, "'it comes of killing its beauty for you and me, my boy. "'And I can tell you more, Curdie. "'I don't know much about ladies and gentlemen. "'But I am sure your inside mother must be a lady, "'as her hand tells you. "'And I will try to say how I know it. "'This is how.' "'when I forget myself looking at her as she goes about her work, "'and that happens often as I grow older, "'I fancy for a moment or two that I am a gentleman, "'and when I wake up from my little dream, "'it is only to feel the more strongly "'that I must do everything as a gentleman should. "'I will try to tell you what I mean, Curdie. "'If a gentleman, I mean a real gentleman, not a pretend one, "'of which sort they say there are many above ground,' If a real gentleman were to lose all his money, and come down to work in the mines to get bread for his family, do you think, Curdie, he would work like the lazy ones? Would he try to do as little as he could for his wages? I know the sort of the true gentleman pretty near as well as he does himself. And my wife, that's your mother, Curdie, she's a truer lady, you may take my word for it, for it's she that makes me want to be a true gentleman.' "'Wife, the boy is in the right about your hand.' "'Now, father, let me feel yours,' said Curdie, daring a little more. "'No, no, my boy,' answered Peter. "'I don't want to hear anything about my hand, or my head, or my heart. "'I am what I am, and I hope growing better, and that's enough. "'No, you shan't fill my hand. "'You must go to bed, for you must start with the sun.' "'It was not as if Curdie had been leaving them to go to prison.' "'or to make a fortune. "'And although they were sorry enough to lose him, "'they were not in the least heartbroken "'or even troubled at his going. "'As the princess had said, "'he was to go like the poor man he was. "'Curdie came down in the morning from his little loft, "'dressed in his working clothes. "'His mother, who was busy getting his breakfast for him, "'while his father sat reading to her out of an old book, "'would have had him put on his holiday garments.' which, she said, would look poor enough among the fine ladies and gentlemen he was going to. But Curdie said he did not know that he was going among ladies and gentlemen, and that, as work was better than play, his workday clothes must, on the whole, be better than his playday clothes. And as his father accepted the argument, his mother gave in. When he had eaten his breakfast, she took a pouch made of goatskin, with the long hair on it, "'filled it with bread and cheese, and hung it over his shoulder. "'Then his father gave him a stick he had cut from him in the wood, "'and he bade them good-bye rather hurriedly, "'for he was afraid of breaking down. "'As he went out he caught up his mattock and took it with him. "'It had on the one side a pointed curve of strong steel "'for loosening the earth and the ore, "'and on the other a steel hammer for breaking the stones and rocks.' Just as he crossed the threshold, the sun showed the first segment of his disc above the horizon. Chapter 10 The Heath He had to go to the bottom of the hill to get into a country he could cross. For the mountains to the north were full of precipices, and it would have been losing time to go that way. Not until he had reached the king's house was it any use to turn northwards. Many a look did he raise as he passed it, "'to the dove-tower, and as long as it was in sight. "'But he saw nothing of the lady of the pigeons. 
On and on he fared, and came in a few hours to a country where there were no mountains more, only hills, with great stretches of desolate heath. Here and there was a village, but that brought him little pleasure, for the people were rougher and worse mannered than those in the mountains. And as he passed through, the children came behind and mocked him. "'There's a monkey running away from the mines,' they cried. Sometimes their parents came out and encouraged them. "'He doesn't want to find gold for the king any longer, the lazy bones,' they would say. "'He'll be well taxed down here, though, and he won't like that either.' But it was little to Curdie that the men who did not know what he was about should not approve of his proceedings. He gave them a merry answer now and then, and held diligently on his way. When they got so rude as nearly to make him angry, he would treat them as he used to treat the goblins, and sing his own songs to keep out their foolish noises. Once a child fell as he turned to run away after throwing a stone at him. He picked him up, kissed him, and carried him to his mother. The woman had run out in terror when she saw the strange miner about, as she thought, to take vengeance on her boy. When he put him in her arms, she blessed him, and Curdie went on his way rejoicing. And so the day went on, and the evening came, and in the middle of a great desolate heath, he began to feel tired, and sat down under an ancient hawthorn, through which, every now and then, a lone wind that seemed to come from nowhere, and to go no whither, sighed and hissed. It was very old and distorted. There was not another tree for miles around. It seemed to have lived so long, and to have been so torn and tossed by the tempest on that moor, that it had at last gathered a wind of its own, which got up now and then, tumbled itself about, and lay down again. Curdie had been so eager to get on that he had eaten nothing since his breakfast. "'but he had had plenty of water, "'for many little streams had crossed his path. "'He now opened the wallet his mother had given him, "'and began to eat his supper. "'The sun was setting, "'a few clouds had gathered about the west, "'but there was not a single cloud anywhere else to be seen. "'Now Curdie did not know "'that this was a part of the country very hard to get through. "'Nobody lived there, "'though many had tried to build in it. Some died very soon, some rushed out of it. Those who stayed longest went raving mad, and died a terrible death. Such as walked straight on, and did not spend a night there, got through well, and were nothing the worse. But those who slept even a single night in it, were sure to meet with something they could never forget, and which often left a mark everybody could read. And that old Hawthorne might have been enough for a warning— it looked so like a human being dried up and distorted with age and suffering, with cares instead of loves, and things instead of thoughts. Both it and the heath around it, which stretched on all sides as far as he could see, was so withered that it was impossible to say whether they were alive or not. And while Curdie ate there came a change. Clouds had gathered over his head, and seemed drifting about in every direction as if not shepherded by the slow, unwilling wind, but hunted in all directions by wolfish flaws across the plains of the sky. The sun was going down in a storm of lurid crimson, 
and out of the west came a wind that felt red and hot the one moment, and cold and pale the other. And very strangely it sang in the dreary old hawthorn-tree, and very cheerily it blew about Curdie, now making him creep close up to the tree for shelter from its shivery cold, now fan himself with his cap, it was so sultry and stifling. It seemed to come from the deathbed of the sun, dying in fever and ague. And as he gazed at the sun, now on the verge of the horizon, very large and very red and very dull, for though the clouds had broken away, a dusty fog was spread all over the disk. Curdie saw something strange appear against it, moving about like a fly over its burning face. This looked as if it were coming out of the sun's furnace heart, and was a living creature of some kind, surely. But its shape was very uncertain, because the dazzle of the light all around melted the outlines. It was growing larger. It must be approaching. It grew so rapidly that, by the time the sun was half down, its head reached the top of the arch, and presently nothing but its legs were to be seen crossing and recrossing the face of the vanishing disk. When the sun was down, he could see nothing of it more, but, in a moment, he heard its feet galloping over the dry, crackling heather, and seeming to come straight for him. He stood up, lifted his pickaxes, and threw the hammer end over his shoulder. He was going to have to fight for his life. And now it appeared again, vague, yet very awful, in the dim twilight the sun had left behind. But, just before it reached him, down from its four long legs, it dropped flat on the ground, and came crawling towards him, wagging a huge tail as it came. End of section 7